0: When you think of people helping marginalized communities and struggling third world countries, you might think of mission trips. They build schools and help people get fresh water. So they must be doing some good, right? Well, it turns out a lot of the lasting positive effect they have is simply for themselves. In fact, some missionaries are actively causing harm and even killing those they claim to want to help. Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, semi-weekly series about historical events, people and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati and on today's episode, we're going to be speaking about a broad topic and the harm it can cause by looking at quite a few historical events and what what's going on there today. And the root of the cause of all of these events, mission trips. Now, before I get into this, I want to say that I do believe mission trips can do some good, and I don't think that all or even most people that attend mission trips are ill-intentioned. Whether a religious or a non-religious mission trip, I'm sure many missionaries believe they're doing exactly as these volunteer websites state, enhancing the quality of life in marginalized communities by building homes, schools, medical clinics, and teaching English. However, do mission trips really help these people long-term? Well, it turns out the answer isn't so black and white, and that's what I wanted to discuss with you today. Now, of course, before we get into what mission trips do, let's discuss what they are and dig into the history of the modern mission trip as we know it. Some missionary websites state that in the early days of Christianity, missionaries would travel to Asia, Africa, and Great Britain to talk about the Bible. The 16th and 17th century provided the technology, the printing press, and the religious push, the start of the Protestant church to make missionaries work all the more possible. Bibles were translated in many other languages and international mission trips began to merge with exploration of new countries and continents, as they put it. History.com supports this narrative and says, Christianity did not initially succeed by taking its message to the great and the powerful, the mighty Roman elite. It succeeded at first as a grassroots movement. One might think that if Christianity went from some 20 people in the year of Jesus' death, say 30 CE, to something like 3 million people 300 years later, there must have been massive evangelicalistic rallies converting thousands at a time each and every day. That wasn't the case at all. If you chart the necessary rate of growth along an exponential curve, the Christian movement needed to increase at a rate of about 3% annually. That is to say, if there are 100 Christians this year, there will need to be only 3 conversions by the year's end. If that happens year after year after year, the numbers eventually pile up. Later in the history of the movement, when there are 100,000 Christians, the same annual growth rate will yield 3,000 converts. When there are 1 million Christians, 30,000 converts in one year. The key was to reach people one at a time. It grows from bottom up, not the top down. The top will eventually convert. Though this may have been true in the early years, colonialism and forced conversion were present as well. Some sources claim that it was Augustine, the great Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in the late fourth and fifth century that began using force to correct dissident Christians. It wasn't until the Frankish kingdom of Charlemagne in the eighth century that we truly see conversion being forced upon non-believers. Of course, the history of missionaries as a broad term is an incredibly long and complicated one. Generally speaking, though, short-term missions or STMs have been around since the 1960s. It grew dramatically in the 80s and 90s, and to this day, millions of missionaries, a large portion of them being young Christians, participate in these mission trips. One of my sources attributes this growth to the success of projects like the Peace Corps, paired with the growth of mass commercial air travel. Organizations like YWAM Youth with a Mission and OM Operation Mobilization created cross-cultural experiences that lasted from a month to a year or two. According to this article, established missionary boards and agencies were slower to adopt short-term missions, and when they did, the narrative was different. It was less about spiritual formation for the young people and more about helping established missionaries, even recruiting new long-term missionaries. The boards didn't view short-termers as missionaries, but as potential missionaries. The Southern Baptist Journeyman program founded in 1965, for example, featured a two-year term with the goal of exposing young people to missionary life while serving career goals of established missionaries. In the late 60s, Africa Inland Mission had short-term options of one to two years available, but promotional materials encouraged missionaries to always have long-term service as their goal. Therefore, it took a good decade or so for these short-term missions to truly take off. And frankly, I can absolutely understand the mindset. My focus today is primarily on short-term missions and why they can actually be harmful. Long-term missionaries, religious or not, have the time to truly learn about a culture and they have the potential to help in a far more lasting, impactful, and meaningful way. Regardless of what you think about the religious or preaching aspect, when it comes to missionaries, the longer you're there, the more good you can potentially do for a community. So before we get into the harm of STMs, let's talk about the difference between STMs and LTMs and the benefits of the latter. According to researcher, Dr. Dennis Horton, an associate professor of religion at Baylor University and principal investigator on a study of the effects that short-term mission trips have on mission team members, The benefits of STMs are worth the investment. They do help people. The trouble is that they're helping the missionaries more than they do these host countries. Students who participate in short-term mission trips will have lower levels of materialism, greater appreciation for other cultures, and a better understanding of missions as a lifestyle. And that's all well and good, but if those are the largest benefits seen from short-term missions, then why are they continually framed as trips meant to help the less fortunate? One article from Nations Media puts it, we need to rethink the language used around STMs, it suggests. What if instead we called them vision trips or learning trips? A simple renaming might change the whole way we plan, prepare for, and experience such trips. Imagine someone asking for financial support for a vision trip, instead of saying, please give me money so I can take the gospel to a dark place, build a house for the homeless, run a summer camp for kids in Haiti. A short-termer might say, if you would like to invest in me, would you help me travel to a different culture so that I can expand my view of who God is and how he works by learning about him in a foreign land?" Dr. David Zach Nurenje was assistant bishop of the Kampala Diocese of the Anglican Church of Uganda. When asked if short-term mission trips could serve African Christians well, he suggested that short-term trips ought to be orientated around listening. What if, he said, instead of going with a mission in mind, Americans just brought greetings from one church to another and opened up a conversation, a relationship. I think this is actually a really fantastic point. And if short-term mission trips are going to continue, then it's something that needs to be considered. Rather than these trips being seen as a way for these students to feel good about themselves for telling others about God, why not listen to and work with these communities so they can be better advocates and truly develop a relationship with the people there instead? And again, please know that I'm not saying that I believe every missionary has selfish reasons for doing this work, simply that the benefits are far more self-serving than anyone may want to realize. According to Baylor University's article on the topic, in terms of long-term effects, some studies show little difference between those who have participated and those who haven't. Patterns are similar in terms of giving, materialism, and believing in one's culture is superior. So many, not all, but many mission trips are essentially just funding a student's short-term self-esteem and apathy while only offering host countries very little long-term aid. It's worth noting that the studies around mission trips have very small groups that they evaluate. At one point, the source also mentions that they only have 32 students that were interviewed after their trips. And I understand that a study of that size just isn't going to be really enough to definitively prove anything. A different study conducted by Robert Wuthnow in 2004 cites that about 2 million missionaries participate in these trips annually. So if only 32 people were interviewed, that's a tiny, tiny percentage, and it can't possibly represent the whole. The source also explains, reliable academic research on the topic is limited, We find it frequently glosses over the great diversity of experiences which fall under the mission trip umbrella and often uses very limited data to support far-reaching conclusions about the state of short-term missions and how the industry should change. I do want anyone listening or watching to keep in mind that as we go forward, there isn't a ton of reliable research on this particular topic. There's absolutely ideas I can present and theories that we might be able to create, but that the data field we look at is so small that it's hard to really definitively nail down anything. As of this moment, I think it's unfortunate that the current amount of long-term missionaries that are able to form deep connections with local churches and understand the culture have dropped over the decades and that these short-term missionaries have become popularized instead. Those deep connections aren't just with the local government either, but with the children and residents. One source points out that, quote, Short stays have a particularly cruel psychological impact on vulnerable children in orphanages or health facilities as attachments are formed to the volunteers only to be abandoned again and again when the volunteers eventually leave." End quote. Whether it's faith-based, medical service trips, conservation or construction, short-term mission trips are a booming industry. Now that we have a bit of background on these trips, let's go ahead and talk about some of the harm that they can cause. One of the most important points I see referenced when discussing any sort of mission trip is the fact that this sort of work will often create a dependency rather than truly initiate change. As an aside, I want to make it clear here that the source I'm about to quote is called the Gospel Coalition, one that does support the church. So it's not as if I'm using anti-Christian websites when we are gonna begin talking about this, nor do I want to come across as hateful by saying any of this. It's simply information that I believe anyone, especially these Christian missionaries, should be aware of, as my source states. Short term missions is fraught with problems, and many wish such trips did not exist, at least in the common form today. Writing in his book Toxic Charity, Robert Lupton says contrary to popular belief, most mission trips and service projects do not empower those being served, engender healthy cross cultural relationships improve quality of life, relieve poverty, change the lives of participants, or increase support for long-term missions work. Let's start with some statistics from Lupton's book. Africa has received $1 trillion in benevolent aid in the last 50 years, and per capita income is now lower, life expectancy has stagnated, and adult literacy is lower. 85% of aid money flowing to African countries never reaches the targeted areas needed. U.S. mission teams who rushed to Honduras to help rebuild homes destroyed by Hurricane Mitch spent on average $30,000 per home. Homes locals could have built for $3,000 each. The money spent by one campus ministry to cover the costs of their Central American missions trip to repaint an orphanage could have been enough to hire two local painters and two full-time teachers and purchase new uniforms for every student in the school. No one wants to think their generosity hurts people. But books like Dead Aid and When Helping Hurts have alerted us to the problem. So, what is going on? The answer is complex and involves issues of basic economies, power, dependency, and bad motives. In terms of economics, in some cases, donations have been harmful. In East Africa, for example, they used to have a large clothing industry that employed many people. Since people in the West have begun donating clothing, many have lost their jobs. Rwanda has even banned the import of secondhand clothes for this very reason. One 2017 article from the New York Times wrote, in Kenya, they are called the clothes of dead white people. In Mozambique, they are clothing of calamity. They are nicknames for the unwanted used clothing from the West that so often ends up in Africa. Now, a handful of countries here in East Africa no longer want the foreign hand-me-downs dumped on them because they're trying to manufacture their own clothes, but they say they're being punished for it by the United States. Now, I also understand that this may not be what the missionaries do, donating clothes, but it all relates back to the same matter of the help that we offer turning into something problematic. The fact is that it's the government and local authorities that need to do better in many of these countries that missionaries do work in. For example, there's high-level corruption in Uganda, theft of public funds, and any attempt to stop corruption is often met with political interference, harassment, threats, you name it short-term missionaries from what I've seen don't really address this. Therefore, whatever help that's provided is just a band-aid solution and it isn't going to actually change anything, nor will it incentivize the government to change so long as missionaries keep filling the gaps that they don't. Anti-corruption work is more important in the long-term building than homes because it truly helps these countries begin to rebuild. When short-term missionaries that may not understand the culture of a country come in, build school and leave in a way they're enabling the corrupt system that won't help their own people. I rarely see this talked about and it isn't even discussed among many of my sources, but this is one of the largest reasons why I believe that if someone is going to help, again, faith-based or not, then long-term missionaries willing to come immersed in the culture and work alongside local government is what's really needed the most. Again, there isn't a ton of research out there, but the research and papers that I have found do agree that many missionaries have created these dependencies rather than a collaborative relationship. Although we've talked about how STMs don't seem to have many benefits, let's talk about the genuine harm that can come from missionaries. This next point specifically is going to apply to STMMs or the short-term medical missions, and there's just very little regulation there. But before we get into that and taking a look at some of the true harm, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. So today's episode is sponsored by me. I'm just kind of waving a little banner here really quick to be like, hey, we can connect outside of these episodes and here's where you can type of thing. If you go to my description box, you'll see something called a Linktree link. And when you click on that, it shows you links of all of my social media that I'm on and other projects and things that I'm up to. Did you know that I have a Twitter and an Instagram? Well, on my Linktree link, you can follow me there. Did you know that I'm starting to get back into streaming on Twitch? Well, you can find my Twitch link too. And did you wanna suggest topics for future episodes? Well, if you go to my Discord server, which there's a link for, you can leave suggestions there too. And of course, maybe you just need some eye bleach and you need to watch my dog Casper run around and having the best time of his life. Well, there's a link for his channel as well. So yeah, that's my awkward promo. Uh, Don't really know how to end this, but um, yeah. Okay, let's go back to it now. Now, although STMMs, or again, short-term medical missions may not be quite as problematic when it comes to talking about the Bible or cleaning up litter, regulation in healthcare is crucial yet lacking. According to a 2018 article published by Global Health, The absence of legal or professional oversight means that there are very few financial or legal consequences for conducting irresponsible, even harmful programs. Most countries vary with regard to the legal requirements for visiting medical groups and enforcement of requirements. Ministries of health often have strict regulations governing how physicians can qualify to practice in their countries. Ghana, for example, states that it is against the law to practice in Ghana without being registered with the Medical and Dental Council Ghana. It is also unlawful to employ and engage the services of a practitioner who is not registered with the council. Some countries such as China, Philippines, and Belize have regulations specific to the registration of foreign medical missions, and the UN also has guidelines for foreign medical teams responding to disasters. These include requirements of registration, submission of credentials, and oversight by host organizations and legal authorities. However, having rules does not mean that there exists the resources for their enforcement we were not able to locate any research on enforcement of such regulations. Research is needed on models for and experience with the application of these regulations. Anecdotal reports suggest that many program providers and volunteers ignore them. Additionally, it may be difficult to navigate acceptable local compliance without the guidance of a host partner. Yet only 19 of the 27 guidelines call for a host partner. And research on actual practices indicate that as many as half of programs do not always work with host partners. So to oversimplify, some host countries don't have regulations for missionaries to follow. Others do, but they might be ignored. There are a myriad of concerns to be had here. One is the sheer fact that these people can be unqualified. One mission hospital reportedly recruited on the basis that all that was needed was the desire to help. As fantastic as that sounds in theory, I don't think I would want to go to a hospital with that slogan, but choices in these countries might be limited. The conditions are also incredibly different as another source states. The lack of diagnostic tools and resources, even of basics such as paper, equipment, medication, x-ray facilities, or reliable power and water limits the professional ability, particularly of inexperienced volunteers, to dangerous help or at least questionable benefits for patients. Practicing way beyond scope has been reported frequently. Often, this is due to the absence of a more experienced colleague or because there is no one who will refer a patient, but it could also be in the keen and reckless pursuit of adventure. This leads to two serious problems, harmful treatment and the lowering of ethical standards. According to NBC, 119 children died in Renee Bach's care between 2010 to 2018 a women's advocacy group in Uganda sued her, accusing her of operating a nonprofit as an unlicensed medical facility. Bach claimed that she had a 96% success rate and that she did have medical training. Unfortunately, this medical training was just a CPR certificate. She had no medical degree whatsoever. The two women suing Bach claimed that she was, quote, seen wearing a white coat, a stethoscope, and often administered medications to children in her care, end quote. Bach may have had fantastic intentions, but even that much is debatable. She herself has stated, I never intentionally put myself in a position to treat children for illnesses or be involved medically. I was, and I'm not putting this off on anyone else, but I was often thrown into those situations, not by choice. However, according to former volunteers from 2009 to 2015 specifically, she was closely involved in caring for sick children. One former volunteer even stated that Bach lured mothers and children from government hospitals to her organization called Serving His Children. Though Bach is in her 30s now, when she started this, she was a 20-year-old high school graduate with no medical training, and she didn't employ a single doctor at her center. It's really hard for me to think that she wanted to help when she clearly made no moves to do so. And as for that 96% rate, it's just simply not true. She took in 940 children and over 100 died. NBC said 119, NPR claims 105. NPR also wrote, Jackie Kramlick was one of the many American volunteers drawn to the center. I went in with a lot of admiration, she recalls. It was the summer of 2011. By this point, Bach had hired three Ugandan nurses to help out during the day and stocked a room she dubbed the clinic with medical gear, such as oxygen tanks, IV catheters, and monitoring equipment. The center was caring for as many as a dozen children at a time. But Kramlick, who had just been certified as a registered nurse in North Dakota, was taken aback to realize just how sick these children were. They weren't just malnourished, they had complicated illnesses. Pneumonia, internal parasites, tuberculosis, many were in stage four HIV, Kramlick says. Almost every week a child would die. Also, it seemed to Kramlick that Bach, now 22 years old, was handling a lot of the medical care herself. Now, Bach had been a missionary as a teenager first, so I understand her wanting to help. But if you ask me, Bach simply figured she could walk into a clinic, claim she was qualified, and then gain some self-satisfaction out of it, and a few people died along the way, and it was just a mistake to her. But that's not helping. I don't care that she claims God called her to do this. You can't practice medicine without being qualified. It's dangerous, and what she did was wrong and disgusting. Kramlik even recalls her Googling symptoms along the way and talking about a patient saying, I think she might be having a reaction, but I don't know because Google says they're having a reaction and they'll have a rash. People's lives were at stake and she just kind of played a game with them. She did lose the suit by the way, but I would hardly call her consequence justice. Apparently, Bach and her charity agreed to pay just under $10,000 to each of the two women suing her without an admission of liability. These two women sued because their children died under her care. And yet all Park had to do was pay $20,000 and everything just went away. She apologized and said she wouldn't be in medical care, but that's just not enough in my opinion. Children died, like literally over a hundred children died. The most recent article I could find about this case states that four more Ugandan families are seeking justice. The legal action obviously has not been settled as of the time I've been looking into this, but it was filed some months ago. So hopefully soon we'll begin to see some real justice for these families. And in that article, not only does The Guardian cite Renee Bach's negligence, deceit, and lack of medical knowledge as the cause for many of these children's deaths, but they mention that she had a white savior complex. And this is something that's come up quite a bit in my research on this topic, and that's what we're gonna jump into next. However, before we get there, I want to mention another aspect of this under-regulation and a brief trigger warning for this portion because we're going to mention some sexual assault. I won't go into great detail, but it will still be mentioned. So if that's something that bothers you, just skip ahead to another section or maybe this is where you kind of dip out for the episode. One BBC article about Gregory Dow says that this Christian missionary working at a Kenyan orphanage also assaulted girls while he was there. Two of the girls were 11, one was 12, and another was 13. BBC reads, the defendant purported to be a Christian missionary who cared for these children and asked them to call him dad. But instead of being a father figure, he preyed upon their youth and vulnerability, said the US Department of Justice in a statement. He fled Kenya in September, 2017, when the allegations of assault came to light, the statement adds. It goes on to say that the FBI acted on a tip-off and Mr. Dow was charged in July, 2019. Gregory Dow hid behind his supposed faith on the other side of the world, hoping no one in the U.S. would know or care about the children he abused. He was wrong, said U.S. Attorney William McSwain. Prosecutors pointed out that in 1996, he pleaded guilty to assault with intent to commit sexual abuse, for which he received two years probation and was ordered to register as a sex offender for a decade. This is incredibly upsetting, not only because these poor girls suffered at Dow's hand, but because he also had a record. Some sources say that violence and sex offenses should disqualify a felon from being part of a missionary, while others say it depends on the severity of the crime. I don't say this because I think that an ex-con can't be a missionary. That's not my case. It's just to illustrate how little regulation exists within the missionary community. NBC News has also reported on a case called the New Tribes Missionary Kids, According to NBC News, New Tribes Missionaries, one of the largest Christian missionary organizations in the world and operating in more than a dozen countries had staffers that were wolves in sheep's clothing. In interviews with NBC, more than half a dozen women say they were sexually abused by New Tribes staffers while attending the mission schools in the 80s and 90s. Because the alleged abuse took place overseas and was never reported to local law enforcement authorities, the men have never stepped a foot in jail or appeared on any sex offender registry. NBC News tracked down one of the accused pedophiles to a tiny town in Georgia where he was giving sermons at a local church. The man, David Brooks, was identified in the Senegal report as the school's most prolific perpetrator of sexual abuse, preying on one girl alone more than 50 times. Brooks declined to comment to NBC News. Given this and all we've discussed thus far, It seems to be that because these missionaries are so eager and desperate to help at times that they just don't show good judgment or long-term thinking. That's just my opinion and speculation, but I feel that if more preparation, planning, and skepticism were utilized here, that these kinds of things would be less common. The Houston Chronicle also published yet another disturbing story about a man, George Thomas Wade Jr., a missionary on African training farms in Bush villages. All the while, he was molesting his own daughter and had abused three children in total. Even though George's history about this may not have been known, it's horrifying to think that these abusers are working with children and the policies and practices that would protect these kids just don't exist. Missionaries do have background checks. One evangelical site I found says that it's mandatory for their program. However, since it's not mandatory by the state, this church is based in Pennsylvania, I think, but I'm sure other states have similar regulations, it's possible that this could continue to happen. Background checks should be mandatory for anyone working with kids, volunteers or otherwise, in my opinion. If missionaries want to help, why not ensure that those working in those communities are actually safe to be around? Now then, on an important, but slightly less criminal note, what is the white savior complex and how does it exist in the context of missionaries? Let's discuss that now. The white savior complex is a term that refers to white people who help people of color, but make it about themselves. I'm not saying that every single missionary or philanthropist or volunteer has done this. However, it is extremely prevalent. Think of Gwyneth Paltrow who declared, I am African in the name of AIDS awareness or Louise Linton's memoir. Louise spent a gap year in Zambia and then wrote a memoir where she says, Africa is rife with hidden danger and that her dream gap year became a nightmare and seemingly made the entire book about her all while patronizing Zambians and using racist and accurate tropes. But sure, she was helping people, right? In missionaries, this white savior complex can become especially dangerous because some Christians, whether you agree with them or not, do believe they are literally saving people from hell. In part because of this, they will also reach out to everyone, even uncontacted tribes that are susceptible to disease. One article from this from the BBC reads, Mark Plotkin is a botanist and co-founder of the president of the Amazon conservation team. The group works with the Colombian government to protect isolated peoples. I've worked for 30 years in the Amazon and I've seen there are two types of missionaries, he tells the BBC. Those who want to prepare these tribes for the outside world and those who want to save some souls for Jesus. He says that while missionaries do truly believe they're making the world a better place, their work can be extremely harmful. Dragging uncontacted people out of the jungle for their own good is sometimes not for their own good, he told the BBC. Now, some people have associated John Chow with white savior complex as well, though he is not solely white because of the attitude he infamously portrayed when traveling to a forbidden island full of uncontacted people to spread word about the Bible. I have an entire episode about the Sentinelese and North Sentinel Island where I discuss that case, but even if John had been able to communicate or live among this uncontacted tribe, he would have been putting them in harm's way. Whether it's the misguided notion from Renee that her high school diploma was enough to help sick African people or the idea from missionaries that they're helping uncontacted tribes without realizing they're spreading disease to those that don't have immunity to it, these extreme versions of the white savior complex can and does kill people. I do think it's tacky when celebrities or churches will post photos of themselves with African children in a self-congratulatory way. Like some may argue it doesn't diminish the work they've done, they're only spreading awareness, but... After everything we've discussed so far, I do believe that these short-term missions get far more credit than they deserve. I know that sounds mean and that's, I just don't think that's simply the best way to help. Now, another final important point to make here is that many STMs have a lack of cultural knowledge. I don't necessarily blame them for that. It's not as if you can learn everything about a culture in just a few short months, but what many missionaries may not realize is how dangerous this can become. One article explains that missionaries often don't know much about the cultural expectations in other countries. So as this article puts it, an innocent game like painting the faces of kids who show up to a church outreach in Africa turns into community outrage and child abuse as face painting in the region is associated with the demonic. Even the Deseret, a news source owned by the LDS church addresses this in their article about missionary zeal. One woman interviewed for the article, Francine Bennion stated, One American missionary couple trying to teach food storage to a group of Hopi Indians emphasized the importance of storing wheat. The term would be Native Americans or indigenous people here, not Indians. As an aside, I'm just quoting her. She continues, when the Hopis explained that they already stored and used corn and that it was sacred to them and their way of life historically, the couple insisted that they store wheat and attendance subsequently dwindled among the local congregation. They didn't know how they could trust a church that was so ignorant and so arrogant, Benyon said. Not knowing or understanding or even trying to change someone else's culture is a surefire way to diminish your ministry or even hurt those you claim you want to help. NPR also discusses this in an interview with John Donnelly, a former foreign correspondent for the Boston Globe and author of the book, A Twist of Faith, An American Christian's Quest to Help Orphans in Africa. Donnelly explains that even though he thinks it's important and amazing that Americans travel to Africa and have this passion to help, he just wishes they were more effective. People should go with open minds and they don't, he states. In order to have a long-term effect, you have to understand the culture. Donnelly argues that these missions do more good than harm and they're simply just not doing as much as advertised. Whether you agree with Donnelly or believe missionaries do more harm than good, The fact of the matter is that many are worrying and have damaging elements to these STMs and I just don't see it often presented or discussed. If these were presented as learning trips, almost like a way for missionaries to see if a long-term mission trip was right for them and to speak to a local community as Amy Peterson from Nations Media suggested, then I might feel differently. But as of right now, the mindset and the system is incredibly broken. One source says that one of the reasons these missions are so popular is because Christians believe that they are called to make disciples of all nations. In the book of Matthew, this was Jesus's final command to his followers. However, one Christian explains why these short-term mission trips are not the answer to this command in a World Vision article. They explain, making disciples of all nations doesn't end with baptism or conversion. It means investing in and disciplining followers of Christ. To do this, we must recognize that when we enter communities overseas, we're not bringing Christ there. Christ has been present and at work long before we arrived, and Christ will be at work and his beloved community long after we leave. As Christians, we have the opportunity to join God in his story of healing, wholeness, and redemption, but doing so requires work. It's more than flying, eat a couple of meals together, write a check, share the gospel, and leave. Whether or not you believe this, whether or not you're religious, I hope there can be more dialogue and discussion around this topic as a whole. If missionaries genuinely want to help, then hopefully they'll be receptive to the locals and to the honest critique about these STMs. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you learned something new. It was something I wanted to talk about and just kind of discuss for a little bit because I feel it doesn't get enough attention and it is something that is kind of important. So thank you again for joining me. I appreciate your time today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.